Hi there, my name is Adam Waters, and I'm the lead pastor here at Grace Bible Church in Elmhurst, Illinois. I'm just so glad that you made the decision to take us along with you this week on life's journey. Here at Grace Bible Church, we are a family of faith who seeks forgiveness, healing, and hope in Jesus Christ. Now, we might all come from different backgrounds, but each of us recognize that the tremendous needs in our lives point us to one place, to God, for His answers, His provision, and mostly, for His grace. I hope the following program gives you a new perspective on who God is, who you are, and how you too might find forgiveness, healing, and hope in our Lord Jesus. Thanks for listening. This morning I'm going to be reading from Mark chapter 6, verses 45 through 52, if you would like to turn in your Bibles with me. I'm reading the NIV version. Immediately, Jesus made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida, Bethsaida, when he dismissed the crowd. After leaving them, he went up on a mountainside to pray. Later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on the land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down, and they were completely amazed, for they had not understood about, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. After getting dressed this morning, I came to church and I looked in the mirror, and now I don't know if I should unveil the new iPhone or if I should preach a sermon. Um, I think I'm going to go with preach a sermon. Uh, many of you know that I served in the military, and in 1998, I went to North Carolina, and I was at Camp Lejeune, a Marine Corps base there. Uh, I grew up in the Midwest. I've always been here. This was my first time living out of state, and one of the things that, uh, that I really appreciated about being someplace else was... Uh, the weather is different there. You know, it's so much warmer in North Carolina, but with that warmth comes hurricanes. And in 1999, Hurricane Floyd direct hit on Camp Lejeune. At the time, I was living in a trailer with my wife and young son outside of Camp Lejeune, and it was, um, shall I say, not the best trailer there, were, there ever was, I'll tell you. It barely was secured to the ground. It was attached with chains to spikes, I guess. There was nothing surrounding the skirting. It shook when you got into it, but it was cheap. And so it, was, it worked for us. We were a young family. Hurricane Floyd hits. They said, everyone evacuate. Is that rumbling? It said, everyone evacuate. Everyone evacuate. Am I hearing, or are you guys hearing it too? You hearing a rumbling? OK. I apologize. <laughs> It's the trauma of the hurricane that's coming back in my head. So it hits in the middle of the night. It hits about 2 in the morning, and we were um, in bed. Of course, they told us to evacuate. Of course, I'm basically a trained killer at this point, and I wasn't going anywhere because I was invincible, and neither was my family. So it hits, and the weather gets stronger and stronger. You know, I'm outside like an idiot, looking at the wind hitting and watching the trees sway and really starting to enjoy myself. There came a point where I realized that I should not be out here. 
that there's something that's about to happen. I could feel it coming. So I go back into the trailer, and sure enough, tornado touches down nearby. There's tremendous wind. The trailer's really starting to shake, and I am, lack of a better term, freaking out. <laughs> I got my wife and my kid in this trailer. I can't do anything to protect them. Long before I was a believer, so I had no recourse. I had no person to turn to. It was just me at the total helplessness of the wind and the storm around me. At about 3.30 in the morning, there was this moment where everything seemed to die down. And I thought, it's done. We're over. It turns out that we were in the eye of the storm. It's one of the most amazing things that I've ever been in, ever been involved in, is in a storm. It's happened multiple times. When I was in Okinawa, we had typhoons hit, and the same thing happened. The eye of the storm comes. It seems to be relatively quiet. You think it's over. If you're not looking at a radar, you would assume that it's all done. So people go out, they start cleaning up, things start going, and next thing you know, the worst part of the storm, the back of the eye, hits almost immediately and cuts these people off guard. I don't know about you, but life can feel like a storm sometimes. Sometimes for me, I, I, you know, I look at my life and I say, well, there's uh, sort of this underlying chaos that's comfortable for me. You know, the wind is picking up, but there comes a point where I don't want to be here anymore. I don't, want to do the th I don't want to deal with what life has thrown to me, the storm that I am involved in. The winds are picking up. It feels like all will be lost. There's fear. There's chaos. There's uncertainty. Maybe you're in one of those storms right now. I talked to some of you. I'm on the phone. Kiefer family, certainly in the storm right now. If you're not in a storm now, you've certainly been in one before, and I can reassure you this morning that you will be in one in the future. Because storms are part of what it is to live in a sin-sick world. We don't see things coming frequently. We get caught off guard, and if we're not prepared with knowing what to do in those moments, how to understand those moments, we end up succumbing to them, to seeing the storm instead of seeing the person in it, our Lord. You know, this morning I want to talk about, that, about how Jesus himself is the one who sends you into the storm. These storms of life because he wants to reveal himself to you so that you would trust him. It's a tough statement to think about Jesus as the one sending you there. You know, if we don't know how to deal with the storm, if we don't understand this, we're going to miss out on their blessing. Did you know that there's blessings in storms? Oftentimes we don't see them until after, isn't that right? It feels like, what am I possibly going to learn from this? What good could possibly come from this moment, this situation, this scenario? But as it's been said, life is often lived looking forward and understood looking back. It's only after that we see. If we don't deal with it properly now, we can seek to deal with it in sinful ways. We check out. We ignore it. We find something to cover up the feelings. Drugs, alcohol, food, shopping, you name it. We'll find a way to make ourselves feel better about the fear and uncertainty that we face in our lives. And finally, perhaps most tragically, we become a poor witness for Christ. When something tremendous happens in our life, people are watching. Our kids are watching. Our friends are watching. They're seeing how we deal with these scenarios. And if we act like our hair's on fire and all's lost, they are going to assume that what we believe is wishful thinking at best. And perhaps even delusion at worst. 
We need to know how to deal with the storms of life. Today we're in Mark 6.45. This comes right on the heels of Jesus feeding the 5,000. I mean, he's worked this miracle in the presence of thousands of people. And we're going to see here in this very next passage, hours later, how quickly the disciples forget what they had just seen. You know, it's not that they were hard learners, it's that they are quick forgetters. You know, we are in the storms of life, and you'd think after the last one we would have picked something up. We forget. It's part of the nature of sin in our lives. It's part of what it means to be in the flesh, to see the world around us through the physical eyes and fail to see through the spiritual ones. And so God again and again sends us storms that we would relearn and remember the truth about who God is and about who Christ is and about what he is capable of doing in our life. And so there's three principles for I'd like you to remember this morning from this passage. The first, perhaps the most revolutionary one for me at least, is that Christ has sent you into the midst of your storm. Christ has sent you there. This is what it says in 45. Immediately, Jesus, listen to this, made his disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. This word here in Greek is a very strong word with a sense of force and urgency. Maybe another way of saying it is he compelled them. He basically pushed them into the boat and said, go, you must go. Why? Jesus had just fed the 5,000. In another gospel, we see that after he feeds them and he see the miraculous work of this person in their midst, they seek to make him king. They say that the Messiah has come, the time has come for Israel to finally be free from its oppressors. The golden era promised in the Old Testament is here. Let's make him a king. Yet we know that it wasn't Jesus' time. Unless the disciples fall in line with the crowd, he sends them to go. He gets rid of them. He says, you shall not be infected by this spirit right now of them wanting to make me king. So he sends them out. What he's doing is he's rescuing them from an earthly perspective. The crowds had seen this man multiply these loaves. They, of course, maybe didn't understand that he was God. It seems that they were doing it just because they wanted food. This is often the sense. Yet they wanted to make him king, one who would finally crush the Romans, the ones who had been so hard-handed and oppressive. So he sends them out. In a way, he was rescuing them by sending them into the storm. They were in that storm. They were out in that boat, as we shall see, because Jesus sent them there. Now, Jesus obviously knew what would happen. It's not like he was checking the radar and he said, oh, here comes something, here comes a squall, we're going to send them out. Jesus, as we shall see again again, Mark tells us, is God in the flesh. Because Christ is omniscient, he knows everything that has ever happened and everything that ever will, he knew exactly what he was doing and where he was sending those disciples. That storm did not come up by accident, and there's no accident, it's not an accident, that you are in your storm now. It might feel like, my goodness, you mean God put me here on purpose? Yes. Yes. It is this perspective that we must take in our life when we are struggling with the uncertainty, unknowns, and curveballs that happen, let's face it, the tragedies the tragedies that occur in our life. God saw them coming. God moved you into them. 
God put you there for a reason. Now, it doesn't say in the scripture anywhere that God necessarily creates these tragedies. Sometimes it's just the result of a sinful will. Somebody chose to hurt you. Somebody chose to make a bad decision, and those implications, those consequences, maybe tremendous impact on your life. Maybe someone sinned against you very specifically. No friend, that God did not make that happen. But God allowed you to be in it. Because as we see here, as hard as it is to believe sometimes that the storm is better than staying. God has sent us. Christ has sent us into the storm. Many of us who've been in the worst of storms of our lives look back and see God's hand through it all. Of course, we don't see it while it's happening, do we? All we can feel is the pain. All we can see is the insurmountable odds, the obstacles. But looking back, this is one of the really you know, important, this is one of the beautiful aspects about having a multi-generational church. We have people who have been faithful followers of the Lord for decades. We just sent our dear friend Trigg on to heaven. And he was here since 1971, I think, is when he became, 72, something like that. Everybody who got up here talked about the faithful witness of this man. Years. Now, he wasn't exempt from the storms of life. He had them. In fact, towards the end of his life, he was in one with the loss of his wife. Yet nevertheless, he knew that because what God had done in the past, his power and strength and love to him, it informed the way he dealt with his present and allowed him to hope in the future. When we look back on what Christ has done in our lives during our previous storms, we have the strength to endure, don't we? We know that, well, Christ did it once before. It's often said Christ or God hasn't taken us out of Egypt to let us die in the desert. He's with us. He empowers us. And may I even say he gives us gratitude in the storm. Gratitude in the storm. Paul says be thankful for everything. Be thankful in every circumstance. That means even in the struggles, even in the difficult times, even when we've been sinned against, we can have gratitude because we know God is in control, that we're not there on accident, and that Christ is seeking to do something in that storm. Now, there's no doubt, as I've said, that these are hard lessons to learn while you're in it. Am I right? When we're in it, it feels like these storms are impossible to know or these, these lessons are impossible to learn. I don't know how many times someone would come to me and say, you know, there's something good here. What's good here? Start listing off all the bad things. Looking back, I realized that as I did so, I was filtering out all of the good. There are blessings in every storm. We mustn't filter it. We look around to those who have endured similar circumstances, which means we have to share our story. We ask others, how am I here? Christ sent you here. Well, what did you do? I've been there too. Well, this is what I did. And perhaps one of the most difficult lessons that we have to learn is take their suggestions. In recovery, we often work with through a sponsor-sponsee relationship where we're encouraging those who have less recovery time than us and teaching them what it means to live a life free from drugs and alcohol. What it means, we say it like this, what it means to live life on life's terms. And when somebody who's been walking the walk longer than you gives you a suggestion, it's really a commandment. <laughs> you do it. We say voluntold, right? When you are suggested, well, you should try this, it's really do this. This is going to make you feel better. 
So we look to those around us. And we look to God in prayer to get a better perspective on our lives. We need to see our perspective through the eyes of Christ. What does our situation look like to him? Because often from our side, it doesn't look good, does it? It doesn't look good. Verse 46. After leaving them, he went up to a mountainside to pray. This is Jesus. So just as we seek to see things from God's perspective, even Jesus himself seeks to see things from a different perspective. He's actually up on a mountainside as he's praying. Jesus often prayed before after pivotal moments in his ministry. I mean, think about it. He prayed during his baptism, coming up out of the water, where he's revealed to be the Son of God. He prays at the transfiguration where he is changed from the earthly Jesus that the disciples knew to the glory-filled Christ that was filled with the radiance of God. He prayed in Gethsemane, just before he was to be crucified for you and me on a cross, begging God for the strength to go forward. And here he's praying as well. We, so what it is, is when we read that Christ is on a mountainside praying, we need to be paying attention. Something big's about to happen. Something, I mean, he's just fed the 5,000. He's left now to the mountain. Now he's praying, expect something big. And indeed, something big does happen. 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake. Tangent, the Sea of Galilee, it's a lake of Galilee, okay? We talk about a sea, we imagine this tremendously huge, it's not. It feels like you could throw a rock from one side to the other. It's a lake. What's interesting about the geography, or I should say the topography of that lake, is it's almost like a bowl. It's settled down and it's surrounded by hills, and these winds can come up out of nowhere. When I was in Israel, we were on this boat, me and the people that I was touring, I was with, about 30 of us, and we're suns out, it's beautiful, we're listening to worship music. It was the highlight of my Israel trip, by the way. Singing praise praise songs with other believers on the Sea of Galilee. I mean, what better thing would I want to do? That, That was it, that was the place. Nevertheless, As we were on the boat, you could look out and see a storm brewing. And it went from sunshine and calm to darkness and wind. So this was a very common occurrence. In fact, it was a danger for fishermen out on the lake that they knew that at any time these things had come up. Lo and behold, they find themselves in one. The boat's in the middle of the lake and he was alone on land. 48, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. They're pulling and pulling. Every muscle and sinew in their body is firing, yet they're not making any significant headway. In fact, they're probably using energy faster than the boat is making progress to land. I don't know about you guys, but I've been in those situations before where it's like I can sort of see the goal, I can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but I've been fighting so hard in my strength that I'm not going to make it, that I'm not going to get there. I don't have enough. Laney and I and Calvin went uh, on vacation last, I think it was last year, wasn't it? It's during COVID, to, um, to the Upper Peninsula, and we decided to take kayaks out in um, pictured rocks. Okay, so many of you have been up there, you know what, what I'm talking about. And these are not just little kayaks, this is Lake Superior. If, anyone, if anything's a sea, it's Lake Superior. So Galilee, Lake Superior, a sea. So uh, we're out there, and there's sea kayaks, enormous kayaks, and they have rudders in the back to help with... Um, Uh, direction, and the wind's blowing, man. The wind was raging. The waves are three, four feet high. Of course, it's non-refundable, so they're like, we we really want to go. We go out with this group of 
We'll call them novices. I mean, we're not experts, but we've done it a few times before. And we get out there, and the guide is corralling people who have no idea how to paddle a kayak in a straight line in the middle of wind, in the middle of waves, in the middle of a windstorm. You know, Lainey and I, we're, we're paddling. We're getting tired. I'm getting old. I'm getting old. I felt it out there. I was already sore before we even made it in. Calvin's paddling around like it's, you know, he's out and playing in a pool or something. And uh, it was hard. It was hard. I would look as I paddled to the shore, and it felt like I was just in one place. No matter how many times I paddled, I was stuck. I'm not going to admit there was a little sense of joy when he said, okay, we're going back. We never made it to where we were going. We turned around because I wouldn't have made it. I wouldn't have made it. Many of us have been in storms or are in storms now where it feels like we're not going to make it. God has put you in that place. Christ wants you to be there in that moment because he's seeking to reveal something, not about your situation, not necessarily about you, but as we'll see about himself. The Greek word here is really interesting. It says they were tormented in making progress. Tormented. You wouldn't expect that word. In fact, the NIV here says straining against the oars. It doesn't say that. It says they were tormented. They were pulling and pulling and being tortured almost. I think there's another interesting possibility here. Um, in the Greco-Roman world, and even in places in the Bible, there's this indication that sometimes weather was brought up as a result of demonic influence. Okay, And so it could very much be that what is being described here is they are paddling and paddling. They're, oaring, they're pulling at the oars and their spiritual oppression, preventing them from going where they're going. And this sort of makes sense. Think about it. They just get done seeing... Jesus multiply loaves. They get this beautiful, gigantic image of who God is, of who Jesus is. They're on their way to go heal people. People are going to hear the message. It says later on in the next week's text, maybe, or next text, that people recognized him as soon as he got there and they flocked him. So they're leaving something amazing, they're going to something amazing, and there's an obstacle preventing them from getting there, from getting there. The disciples were on the way to a place that many would be healed. There was a need for Christ there, and I would imagine that the forces of darkness would do whatever they could to prevent Jesus from getting there. How does that work? I have no idea. I don't know, but the Bible seems to show it, and the Bible seems to teach it. So oftentimes when we're in our storms and we're trying to get to the shore, know that there's often spiritual oppression happening at the same time. In the storms of our life, you know, they often arise when we're about to do something great for God or we've just seen God work miraculously in our own life. I think about the, uh, the parable of the sower, right? Remember the seed, the word is cast out, it's put on the ground, but before it could take roots, the birds come and snatch it up. It feels like that, like when the disciples saw Christ multiply the loaves, there was some seed planted. The gospel was preached. They were given a, a kernel of truth. Yet before it had time to take root and sink in, here comes this storm, and Satan snatches it away, preventing them from believing. It seems like an attempt to distract us on our mission from God, to divert us from his plan for our lives and divest us, divest us of all enthusiasm for the Christian life. Oh, you just saw something good? <laughs> Let's make something bad happen so that you'll forget and be distracted 
and be despondent about what you just saw. I don't know about how many times in my life something amazing happened. And I'm like, oh my goodness, God is real and working and present and I feel him and I love him and he loves me and everything's right and then a bad thing happens immediately to distract us from the truth, to distract me from the truth. Sometimes we lose sight of this and we see our storms as unfortunate at best or an attempt by God to hurt us at worst. You know, in our storm, it's easy for us to blame God for sending it. You put me out here. We see Moses do that, don't we? Moses take the, take the Egyptian or the Israelites out of Egypt. Moses is in the desert. They're all rebelling. They're hungry. They're irritated. Moses says, why did you send us out here to die? Why did you have me take these people out and now they're rebelling against me? He's blaming God for putting them in this situation. We do that all the time. We do that. But we need to remember that Though, the, though God is not the author of sin, he does indeed use our storms to mold us and teach us. Often lessons we don't want to learn. It's like, man, if this is the means of learning the lesson in my life, I don't want it. Isn't there another way? Remember, I talk about this all the time. This is so profound to me. I hope it's profound to you. Omnisapience. We talk about God's omniscience. He knows everything. Omnipotence. He's all-powerful. Omnipresent. He's every place. But he's also omnisapient. That means all-wise. Paul says it. That means that the way of getting you from point A to point B is perfect. He's promised to make you like Christ. And the means of getting you there will always be right. We say, wasn't there another way? Did this have to happen? to teach me this lesson so that I would see this about you? The answer is no. Perfect way. Because he knows each and every one of us perfectly. Our hearts, our wills, our choices. He knows how to get you there and he often uses storms to do it. But he sees your struggle. He sees your straining against the oars. He sees your opposition in the storm. And he doesn't want you to be alone. Notice he did not leave them to himself, to themselves. And God has not left you to yourself. I know in, in my life, and I have heard other people say this too, is it feels almost like you know, the situation with the disciples in the sea in the storm and Jesus is on a mountain praying. He feels aloof and distant. You know, what do we see? We see Jesus doesn't stay there. He, we see Jesus... Come to them. He has not abandoned you in your storm, and remember that he has sent you there. I mean, he has something to, to teach you. I would say it more like this. He has something to reveal to you about himself. That's our second principle for this morning. Christ seeks to reveal himself amid your storm. It says, shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they all saw him and were terrified. This phrase, he desired to pass them by. Now, it could be that he's just going to make an appearance and walk by. It's what it seems like when you read it in the English. He just he wanted to walk by him. He was going to go to the other side. They would make it. He knew they'd make it. Everything would be fine. But there's a much more theologically loaded idea here. Okay, In the Old Testament, Moses says, Lord, show me all of your glory. And God says, I will talk, remember God, I will put you in the cleft of a rock. I will hide you from all of my glory and I will pass you by. 
This idea of God passing us is this idea of God revealing who he is. So what I think is happening here is Jesus is seeking, again, remember, he's praying on the mountain, prepared for a big event. He's just shown them what he can do as a result of feeding the 5,000. Now he is going to reveal who he is to them. Exodus 32, 17, this is what it says. And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do, after Moses asked him to reveal himself. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. What a beautiful idea. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all of my goodness pass before you. And I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. That name, Yahweh, is our English way of saying God's name in Hebrew, which means I am. I am. When you're studying your Bibles and you're seeing the word Lord, if it's in all capital letters, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, that is the name I am, Yahweh. This is God's relational name. This is God revealing his covenantal nature of who he is to Moses. God sought to reveal his name and character to Moses. He says, I will proclaim the I am. Jesus, listen, this is a revolutionary thing. Jesus is the I am in the flesh. Jesus is very God. God of very God in Jesus, the man. When I learned that, when I got that, when that was revealed to me by the Lord, that changed everything. You know, I thought in the beginning, even I think as I was warming up to Christianity a little bit, I was like, Jesus was a wise man. Jesus did good things. God even may have endowed him with power to work miracles. But it wasn't until I realized that when we see the I am of the Old Testament in Jesus Christ of the Gospels, that the lid got blown off this thing. And this is what Jesus is trying to tell you today. This is what Jesus was seeking to show his disciples. Listen to what Paul says, Colossians 1.15. He, this is Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He is the physical manifestation of God himself. Hebrews 1.3. He is the radiance, so the visible manifestation of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature exact, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Jesus makes knowledge of him by his disciples more important than their crisis. Jesus could have easily, from the mountain, said, be still, storm done, disciples make it. No. He seeks to reveal something about who he is to his people, that they might become more like Christ themselves. When we're in the storms of our lives, when we're in a difficult moment, when the waves seem crashing in, our question should not be, Lord, what do you have to teach me about this situation? Or even, Lord, what, do you have it, what is it that you want me to learn about myself, even though that can be useful? Primarily, first and foremost, Christ wants to reveal who he is in your storm. We get all focused on the situation at our hand, right before us, in front of us. We miss it. We miss seeing who Jesus is. And most simply stated, he is God. 
The implications of that are astounding. That in the storms of our lives, when we call upon him, he has the love, the power, the wisdom, and the ability to see us through. So I'll give you a for instance. If I were in a situation, I've been in these situations, where I am working with somebody in recovery. And was it frequently happens with somebody in addiction, they relapse. And sometimes they just don't relapse a little. If you're anything like me back in the day, I relapse big. I'm like, if I'm going to do this, let's make this count type of thing. And so you get a phone call. I relapsed. Or this is a collect call from the Blank County Jail. I can look at those moments and say, all's lost. This person never going to get it. They've made a mess, now they're going to prison, or now they've ruined a relationship, or whatever. You can fill in the blank. What I should be asking myself is, Lord, what is it that you want to teach me about you in this situation? Often I'll get on the phone with somebody who's been in, their, they're in jail. They feel shame. What'd you learn? Well, I know that I can't use drugs, or I know that I have to, this is a thousand justifications. No, I mean about God. What did you learn about God? What do you mean what I learned about God? Nothing. That was a wasted trip. Our, our storms seek to teach us about who God is. You know, the disciples, they're pretty astute. They knew the Old Testament well. They should have recognized as they saw Christ walking across the water that there was a message being sent. Job 8. There's a chapter here. I'm not sure what it is. But it's verses 8 through 11. So that's your homework. Find out what chapter it is. Search Job. But listen, this is, this is what he says. Job says this. Who alone stretched out the heavens and tramples on the waves of the sea? Who alone? God alone. The disciples in the boat amid their storm seeing Christ, God. Who made the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades, and the chambers of the south, so constellations. Who does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Listen, behold, he passes by me. But I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. In this passage, Job extols the character and power of the invisible God. But unlike Job, the disciples were unable to behold God in the flesh, not because God was invisible, but because they refused to understand. Their hearts were hardened to the astounding truth that this was God before them. The fear for their lives should have been faith in the Lord. Yet they feared their situation and their powerlessness. If we are not careful in the storms of our life, we will miss out on seeing Christ right before us. Right before us. Be distracted by our fear of the storm. We need to look with the spiritual eyes of faith, and often we need each other to remind us that. To remind us. We need to remind each other of that. Where is God in this? Part of this, I'll say it again, part of this presupposes that you're sharing what's happening in your life with others. 
If we expect God to speak to us through the people around us, which he does, we need to be vulnerable to tell others what's exactly happening. We need to be willing to tell them the good, the bad, and the ugly. You know, some of you here, I told some of you stuff that I don't, don't ever want to tell anybody again. Because I know the power of vulnerability and the power of God to speak through his people back to me. So they can remind me that I need to look at my situation through the eyes of Christ, spiritual eyes of faith. It's said that every gray cloud has a silver lining. It might be true, but we have to look for it. We have to look for it. I saw this on Instagram. Sometimes we ask God to grow us and he sends us rain. I saw it this week. I'm like, oh, the thesis of my whole sermon. Our storms drive us to helplessness so that we cry out to God. Our cry should not just be, Lord, save me, but Lord, show me. Show me who you are. You know, it's not the storm itself that teaches us anything. It's not simply a matter of maturity or managing life on life's terms. No, we do not measure our success in dealing with life's storms based on how well we navigate the storm, but how well we know the Messiah in the storm. So look for him. Look for him. It's easy today from the pulpit this morning to say that God puts you in a storm, that God's seeking to reveal himself to you. That's like, well, that's great. I mean, I'm in the middle of a crisis right now, and I don't see much of anything good in this situation. Sometimes we're in so much pain and strife that it seems that Christ is nowhere to be found. In those moments, we have to simply fall back on trust. On trust. The essence, the essence of the Christian life. And that's our third principle for this morning. Remember that Christ desires that you trust him amid your storm. It says, immediately he spoke to them and said, take courage. It is I, do not be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them and the wind died down. They were completely amazed for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Look at Christ's words to his frightened disciples. Look what he says when he comes up. They form something of a thesis. They form something of like our whole message this morning summed up in Christ's own words. Take courage. It is I. Do not fear. In other words, be strong. Don't let the storm you're in dictate your perspective. You have nothing to fear, for I am God, the almighty creator who tramples on the waves of the sea. And I am with you. I am with you. You are not alone in the middle of your storm. The storms that you went through in your life, and that you were not alone then. Many of us know that looking back. We see little events and occurrences and we realize, you know what, God was there. We receive that truth by faith and trust that God is there. He says, it is I. Again, Christ is pointing to the fact that I am God in the flesh. Ego eimi. The Greek way of saying it in the Old Testament that was translated in Greek, where God reveals to Moses who I am, he says, I'll make my glory pass beside you. In Greek, he says, Ego eimi. It's the same phrase, same ordering, it's the same word. Christ is saying, I am. I am. God in the flesh. 
And Christ is reminding us today that he is God in the flesh. That his presence calms our storm. And being in the eye of the storm brought relative peace to my family in North Carolina late that night. But it wasn't until I realized later on, years later, that I needed to be in the I am of the storm. That I was able to endure the storms of life, the spiritual storms, the unforeseen circumstances, the difficult choices other people have made that have impacted me. The devastated lives that I interact with. And you all know your thing. You all have it. You all have it. The God of creation's presence in our lives gives us peace in the storm. Not necessarily because everything calms like it does here. But we know that his power, love, compassion, omnipotence will see us through. But we have to trust him. Unlike the disciples. Don't be like the disciples. These men had just seen Jesus multiply five loaves and two fishes to such an extent that it fed 5,000 men, probably eight or 9,000 people from 12 baskets. And the first thing they do is forget. What moves somebody to do that? Hardness of heart. Hardness of heart. There's a place in your storm where you have to say, while you're paddling and while you're fighting, okay. Your will, not mine. There has to be a place where you say, Lord, I don't know what's going to happen. I, Lane and I talk about this all the time. She goes on her walks. Lane's a walker. Let me rephrase that. Lane is an almost runner. So when I go on walks with Lane, she walks, I walk, and then I run for 100 yards to catch up and then I lag, and then I catch up. The whole family, I don't know, they should have been power walkers. Missed your calling. But that's her prayer time. She says, I'm going on a walk, which is just another way of saying I'm about to go bring some things before the Lord. So sometimes we'll say, and we'll start naming them off. You know, she'll leave. We're in a tough situation. I'm all irritated. I'm jammed up inside. She said, I'm going to go talk to God. I'm going to go pray about it. She comes back, and I say, I'll ask her sometimes, did you pray? She said, yeah, of course. I said, what'd you pray? She said, I don't know what you're going to do, but you're going to do something. That's it. A prayer of faith, knowing that God will answer her prayer. And God has. God has. Sometimes they weren't immediate. Sometimes they're still pending. But I know that he will because he's promised on his very character to see us through storms, to answer our prayers, and to get us safely to the other side where we get to see him again work miracles in lives of those people around us. The disciples had all the evidence they needed yet they couldn't see it. They couldn't see it. So when you're in your storm look to the witness of the Bible. Look to what the Bible says about God. Look what God says about himself and trust what he has to say. Trust it. I will never leave you or forsake you. Trust that. If you say anything in my name, it will be granted to you. Trust that. Don't harden your heart to the truth. When we don't believe something that God has revealed 
about himself to us. We're guilty more of just simple unbelief. There is an active hardening that occurs in our heart. We're rebelling against the compassion and kingship of God in our lives. It's those moments that we need to repent. What do you need? How do I say this differently? I believe that for some of you, there might be something in your life that you've hardened your heart against. God's trying to reveal himself to you in a storm, and you don't want to hear it. You don't want to believe it. You don't want to trust him. Soften your heart today. That starts with repentance. That starts with, Lord, I know that I've been holding you out. I know that I've been seeking to get across the lake in my own power. And I'm not trusting you to do it. And when you have revealed yourself to me, I've ignored it. Forgive me and show me again. We soften our heart. And we ask God to come in. We ask Christ to reveal himself to you. Maybe in order to look to Christ and what he's revealing in the storm, you need to stop looking at something else. Your strength, wishful thinking, or some other way we escape or check out or refuses to deal with life on life terms. During my long night in the midst of Hurricane Floyd, I spent most of the night looking at the radar, hoping that every wobble of the image meant that the storm's path was going to go someplace else, that it wouldn't directly hit us. But eventually the power went out. We didn't have cool phones then. I had to watch the TV. So I was blind and at the mercy of the storm. The disciples looked at their oars. They looked at their strength. They looked at the wind and the waves. They did not look at Christ. And when they did, they were fearful instead of faith-filled. So trust the Lord. So are you rowing right now? Is the wind against you? Are you tired? Does it feel like the headwind you're rowing into is stronger than you or you're never going to make it to the other side? Waves are threatening to scuttle the boat. It feels like all is lost. Know, beloved, that Jesus Christ is not surprised by your plight because he puts you into the midst of your storm. His omniscience, his love, his wisdom... It has put you into this difficult place where you will cry out to him for he seeks to reveal himself to you in the storm. He sent you into the storm to reveal himself to you in it because he desires that you trust him. So trust him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we... uh, We confess, Lord, that there are times that you've placed us in storms and we have not gotten the message. We've looked at the waves, we've looked at the circumstances, we've looked at the wind, and we've tried in our own power, Lord, to fight through. Yet we've learned this morning, Lord, that you seek to reveal yourself to us. So, Lord, forgive us when we have sought to row in our own strength. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters today who are struggling in their own storm. And I pray, Father, that you would reveal yourself in a mighty way. Give them the eyes to see and the grace to soften their heart to receive what it is you have for them about you. 
We thank you, Lord, for the storms that you've gotten us through in our lives. And we just give you all thanks and praise, Lord, that you have promised us to bring us to the finish line, to the other side of the lake. And so, Lord, we look to that day in trust. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Pastor Adam here. Well, I want to thank you for tuning in to Grace Bible Church, and I would love to hear what you thought of today's program or of ways that we can be praying for you and with you. So check us out on social media at GBCL. Also, if you would like to support our ministry, you can give securely at our website at www.gbclm.org. Now remember, God loves you, and so do we.